What's your problem? What's your solution? This is an interview series about making the world a better place. Empowered and educated women have fewer children. That means fewer people eating meat and driving cars, and thus reducing carbon emissions. Chido Govira was born in Zimbabwe and became an orphan at age seven. Chido started the Future of Hope Foundation to share her experience with other women. Chido Govira is a farmer, campaigner, and educator. Welcome to Camp Solutions. Chido, you started the Future of Hope Foundation to support vulnerable people in your home country, Zimbabwe. And the foundation is inspired by your personal journey. What was that journey like? What can you tell me about that? Well, I started as a young girl of seven years old, having to take up roles of adults, uh, most importantly, taking care of a family, securing food, and securing food within the limitations of what the village where I grew up could provide. And I witnessed different forms of abuse that come with not having access to food with not having a secure space that is home and a secure sense of family. And so my experiences were that to get food, I had to go and work in fields. I had to tend to children from other people in the villages. I had to fetch water and do all kinds of household chores to get food. And as a young girl of seven, I only could do what a young girl of seven can. And the result of that was I had a piece of land belonging to my grandmother, which I farmed. At the end of the farming season, all I had was stalks, no food, uh, a bit of corn cobs, no food. And, and so it was realizing that and finding that this is a reality for many, many young girls. I live in a country where almost 10% of the population is orphans, just like I was. And 70% of the population is living in extreme poverty. So when I learned to farm mushrooms at the age of 11, it became immediately clear to me that the corn stalks, the only result that a young girl, that the 10% of the population who has to survive just like I did, can have at the end of a farming season, can now be converted into food in the form of mushrooms. But not only that, that they can actually use that to get, get an income. I realized then that this is what I ought to learn and simplify so I can share that with these other people who needed it. And of course, it was an easy target. I would target young women. I would target girls like me who, at the time, I, w I even had to walk out of school when I was nine. And when I was 10, they would marry me off to a, uh, a guy who was 30 years older than me simply so that I could have food. So I told myself, I want to stop that girls are married off so that they can have food. I want to create an opportunity for girls to be able to continue with their education and that they don't have to commit their young age to finding food. So what results have you seen having done this now for quite a while? I mean, <laughs> for yourself for more than 20 years, obviously, but, but also, you know, teaching others. The creation of the Future of Hope actually was realizing that until 2013, I was teaching people and just, you know, going to teach the next group and they farm mushrooms and they have mushrooms. 
But the major problem with doing that is unless you can link that to some, you can build that into some kind of a, uh, an economic model, it is not enough just to teach people. Mm-hmm. And what we see when you start to link people to the market, when you take young girls like me and you give them a skill which you can link to the market, it's amazing what they can do. But it's also the amazing the support they can start to gather from their local community. And I think that is a big change for us, which is very, very important that you not only give an ability to one individual member of the community, but you also give them something that helps them to activate the power that is the community around them. I'm not claiming that we are already there. We are building this up step by step, uh-huh. but I am 100% sure that when you give a dignified livelihood to women, they will achieve wonderful things. You, you mentioned earlier, just to teach people a few skills is, is not enough, right? You need, to, you need to spark something in them that makes them want to own the initiatives. What goes wrong with a lot of the initiatives is that it's big money, it has to be spent, and it's spent according to the way stipulated by the person who gives the money. And what I think we need for this effort to be sustainable is that the people own this, the people decide what happens. And that's why when I said at the Future of Hope, I told myself, I want to be able to do both the philanthropic work in the organization, but also this um, uh, commercial part to it. And of course, because there are rules that govern philanthropic organizations, I had to shift it and split that into two organizations. At this point, it's unacceptable for a young person like me to build a philanthropic organization whose aim is to grow, to become the next big NGO. But for me, it's to become the organization that builds the foundation for people to cross over, to go on the other side where there is commercial activities, where they can get to a point where they don't need anymore the existence of an organization. I think we should be a generation that build philanthropic organizations that have a a start of life and an end of life and not like forever philanthropic organizations. It is how we continue to kill people. This is how we continue to to um, make people think that it's okay for them to not take responsibility. This is how we build attitudes that think governments solve our problems, whereas we, the people, can solve our problems. And it's, it's, it's yes, governments have a role to play, but in our numbers, and we have seen this in Zimbabwe just two weeks ago, in our numbers, when the cyclone Idai hit the country, mm. People mobilized resources that we did not even know that we have. And before we know it, there was enough flowing into the areas that were affected by the cyclone. And I think that is our power as a people in Zimbabwe. That is our power as a people in any given community that we should not forget to activate. And especially now, with all the crisis in the world, that is the power we need to activate where I know and I take full responsibility of playing my part. So what you use is, is waste, uh, corn stalks that you can't eat. Uh, you may even use coffee grounds, as mm-hmm. you, you've talked about a lot. Um, so basically things that nobody uses anymore, you put it together and that becomes your substrate for the, the mushrooms so they can grow. Mm-hmm. Now, 
mushrooms, as we know, grow quickly and, and they can be harvested again and again and again. But if you started, when you started yourself, how much food did you get for yourself, for your siblings, for your family, from your mushrooms? And, you know, can people eat only mushrooms? How, how, <laughs> tell me how that goes. <laughs> so let me start by saying people cannot eat only mushrooms. No. Hmm? The way we eat mushrooms is as a relish, just like when you're eating meat. You, you eat a piece of meat, you eat some veggies with something else. Mm -hmm. And that's how they're eating uh, the mushrooms. But if you look at the impact it has in terms of the nutrition, normally these people eat uh, uh, maize porridge with vegetables. Yeah. Uh, when, because a lot of them, they cannot afford a kilogram of meat for, to feed the family. No. And, and so... If you are moving from eating just this, uh, we call in, in Zimbabwe the staple is called sadza. To if you can afford to move from eating just sadza and vegetables to having sadza vegetables and mushrooms, first of all you have improved the nutrition for the family, and then with the income you can buy more corn if that's what you need. You can uh, you can buy different things that you need to add to your to your diet. But what we've done with this until now is also to say from the mushroom farming uh, uh, process, we also generate a different kind of uh, byproduct, which is the, all the substrate. After the mushrooms have taken what they can take, we still have a bulk of that. We only have converted 50% of that into mushrooms. They are the 50%. We're using it today to fertilize the soil. And from that soil, we can grow different kinds of vegetables, but also, you can grow other kinds of grains. And we are feeding chickens from the waste of the mushrooms and we make a whole system. So what we're doing is using the potential from mushrooms to have a, an integrated food production system. When you started, when you were 11, you started doing that. You were, up till that moment, you were struggling to get your food every day. You, you know, you needed to get and find it and, and you, there were days that you didn't find, I'm sure you mm -hmm. were hungry. So when the mushrooms started, I mean, was that, have you been hungry after you started the mushrooms? <laughs> was it right away the solution? I've been hungry for doing more, not yes. hungry for food. Um, I Let's think, go. so, I, I, how can you go hungry when you have immediately a mushroom that you can eat and some income? Yes. So, so it was an immediate solution. It was an immediate solution. And it is also, I mean, you know, in, that, in Africa and other parts of the world, many people go to bed very hungry every day. So sure. that immediate solution, anyone everywhere can, can implement, right? Exactly. And this was also one of the important goals for me to say, I would like to make this so simple that everyone can have access to this immediate solution. And if you see mushroom houses that we use in the communities where we work, and you've seen mushroom houses somewhere, if you see a picture just mm -hmm. of the outside, you're thinking, no, it's not possible to grow mushrooms there. But you go in, they have mushrooms. Yeah. And so I think this is, this is an amazing thing that we've been able to do, to really have that, ex that personal experience of saying, this can work and it can work fast, and I want it to work for more people. At 11, you started doing this. You got your first mushroom. How did that taste? Had you ever eaten a mushroom? Oh, I was lucky to grow up with a grandmother who was uh, uh, already a, a past 100 years when I knew her. 
Uh-huh. And my grandmother had such wealth of knowledge in mushrooms. So as a little girl, I had been to the forest uh, foraging for mushrooms with her. She could not see anymore, so she would go sit under a tree, and I ran around gathering different kinds of mushrooms, uh-huh. and she would, by smelling them, tell me that this one is a poisonous mushroom. This is partially poisonous, but if we go home, we cook this dried and cook it later, uh-huh. no poison anymore. And so, because that was part of the culture. They were, they were foraging for their food. Yeah. Uh, be it meat, mushrooms, wild vegetables, different kinds of things, insects. Mm-hmm. We grew up eating all kinds of insects, crickets, locusts, and all yeah. those things. And so I had eaten mushrooms before. I think what was the most surprising part of, of the time when I learned to farm mushrooms was that this mushroom that I have gotten all these years from the forest and my grandmother had told me that to get mushrooms, there was something that you had to do to appease the gods of the forest so they give you more mushrooms next year. And suddenly, I have a little room where I can just grow them and harvest them. It was like magic. That really felt like magic. But yes, when I tasted them, I was like, yes, this is food, and this is food that we know. But it was very difficult to understand that I just grew this in a bag in a room, and now it's here. <laughs> so it was, it was not so much the taste that surprised, it was more the process. The process. Yeah. Right here, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, you were once that 11-year-old girl, and it was, your future was very unclear. Sometimes, when you think back, what do you think? I think the first thing that I feel when I look back is a lot of gratitude to my grandmother because she was a person, I think, who instilled in me biggest hope. And when I think of grandmothers, I think of community, because grandmothers have been like the heartbeat of every community, looking back. And I feel gratitude for having had her and all the respect and all the security that came with having my grandmother. And I feel like every child needs to get that kind of a grandmother to shape them. Our society is becoming easily eroded with all the fast life and everything. And I think that's, I I miss that because that's what made me who I am. Having my grandmother actually made me who I am. I don't think I would have survived a lot of the things that I went through or I would have been able to hold on to a hope if it wasn't for her. And then this aspect of feeling like I have something to offer, I felt towards my grandmother, yes, but it was also towards my younger brother whom I had to raise. And I think there is a lot about family that defines us as leaders and how we show up as leaders in our community. And I'm grateful for that. And I think that is the foundation on which I am built. So are the women that you work with around you in Zimbabwe, do they ever talk about climate change or global warming? (laughs) I want you to imagine that you went to bed two, three times without food 
and you don't hear, you don't have access to hear about climate change the way you and I have access to it today. Of course. You would communicate that in a different way. Yes. We are aware of this. We see something is changing. And yes, we may not name it as the whole world is naming it, but we are experiencing it more than the world who actually names it is experiencing it. And I think this is the biggest challenge in our world, to break down things to basics so everyone can talk about it and we can agree that we're talking about the same thing. And, uh, and we are actually Africa. And where the poorest people are living is where the areas, are the areas where climate change is affecting people the most. Okay, let me ask you in this way. What is your problem? My problem is mobilizing the resources to expand my work. And what is the solution? The solution, <laughs> the solution is to be connected with the right people in the right places with the right openness to actually giving us what we need to drive the work, to engage more women, to put them in, in spaces where they can make decisions about their lives, where they can creatively contribute. Do the men, they can grow mushrooms too, of course. Yes, they can grow mushrooms too. When I talk about community, for me, it's not just a sterile community of women only. It's a community with all the dynamics of a community. It's the men and women, it's that interaction and changing that is what we want to be able to achieve. Because if we don't do that, then you know we, we have that imbalance that we also had in the past when men were stronger than women and when we will have the other side of that is no good for us either. So it's about finding a balance. Politics? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you thought about it? Um, I think about it, yes. I do think about it a lot. Would it help you? Would it, if your mission is, as you described it so well, uh, if you would be the president of your country, would you be able to do more than you can do now? We, we have this thinking that the president does the work. That's not true. No. It's a lie. <laughs> yes. So I fear that if I would become president of my country, I will have my wings knipped. Mm. I think I will be able to do more, not so far as a president, but somewhere in between where I still have the right contact with the people, with the mm -hmm. actual groundwork and influence that in the right way. What is the future of hope? The future of hope is collaboration. It's, uh, you know, community. It's understanding that we're in this together and each one of us has a role to play. As you know, The Future of Hope was actually named after a, a book I wrote telling the story of my life and what I hope for the future. But I just didn't want to tell it. I wanted to be action. I wanted to be seen in real life. And yeah. It's interesting you say action. You know, in, in an interview Deepak Chopra said that I did, he said, you know, uh, hope, uh, I don't like hope because the other, the other side of hope mm -hmm. is always desperation and I don't want to be there. I want love in action. Mm -hmm. What do you like about love in action? 
because that's, that's the thing that connects us. When we start to see how connected we are, when I think about solutions to climate change, uh, I'm not just thinking about what's going to serve me, my business interests, my political interests. I can empathize across the whole spectrum of the other person. That, that we are connected. When we start to think of them like we're working together, we are, we are, it's a collaboration. It's about me and the other people. That, that connection. And we, we can see it, all the things as connected, we act a little bit differently. Isn't it so that the people in the communities where you work understand that connection much more than when you walk around in a in city like Brussels in Belgium where we are today? Well, there, there has been a lot that we lost of this connection, even in communities like ours. We have lost quite a lot. Our young people don't have the same connection with their grandmothers like we had. And why there's not? still something. Because, oh, because there's a lot of things we left behind in the name of civilization. Mm. We had to shed some of our identity in the name of civilization. And we lost something there. And that's why for me, my grandmother is so important because that's really my connection to who I am, which a lot of people don't have access to today. And yes, it's easier for us to build this sense of connection than it is for most parts in the world today, but we need to act on it fast. So when you, when you talk to people today and, and, and want to uh, uh, share your story and, and, and inspire people to maybe help you, what do you tell them? What do you want to say? What, what, what do you think is the most important part of your message? The most important part of my message is that we need to support people to do to build local initiatives to support themselves to support their communities and hopefully to influence things in their countries and food is a key ingredient why is food so important because when people control their food they control many other aspects of their lives. It's, food is actually the biggest politics in any society, especially the poor societies. Food is very politically charged. Lack of control of food makes people do all kinds of things. I will give you an example. In Zimbabwe today, people are hungry. Eh? People don't have the accesses that they should. We agree to say, we're going to march on the street. What are we doing? We are looting, because it's our only chance of getting something. And we, there's no feeling for each other. They say a hungry man is an angry man, right? How can we build peace when people are hungry? How can children learn when they are hungry? How can we actually sit and have dialogues about things that we need to resolve in a community when we are hungry or when I think you are fed and I am hungry? So it's really, it's, it's a foundation for all kind of efforts, be it peace building and then the right democracy thrives on this foundation where it's not for angry men. <laughs> so, this is why food is so important. Thank you. 
Food is essential for peace, and the empowerment of women solves global warming. This was Camp Solutions. See you next time.